0: Good morning, church. Praise the Lord. Indeed, bless the Lord. Let us pray to our God. Father, we want to bless your name. We have not just 10,000 reasons, but if we were to sit down and list all the reasons why we ought to praise you it would be like John who wrote his gospel and said if all the things that Jesus had performed would be listed then there wouldn't be enough space and truly there wouldn't be enough time and it's good for us sometimes to sit down and to think and to think deep and to realize all that that we need to thank you for to express gratitude to all the things to repent of before you, before your holiness. And Father, this time you give us as well to do just that, to sit right now under the authority of your truth of your word and to analyze our hearts and to grow in our love for Christ and to express that love and appreciation through our worship through our walk, even as we continue to look to Christ and and pursue the same holiness. We thank you for the spirit that is in our midst right now. And we pray that you would, by your spirit, just seal these truths in our hearts so that we would know that we as Christians are people who are characterized by ongoing repentance, who grow, And as we grow in our understanding of Christ, we continue to understand our own sinfulness and therefore we repent and we repent often. And so help us, Father, speak to us now, confront us where we're at. And may we just cling to Christ so much tighter. And may we worship him so much more and fervently. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning once again, Saints. What a privilege it is to gather this Sunday together to worship the Lord, to study His Word. Please open with me to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. This morning, as you already heard, we are launching into a new five chapter study in the Gospel of Matthew entitled The Gospel of the Kingdom the gospel of the kingdom. Now, last month during the Advent season, we studied the first opening chapters of the gospel of Matthew, Matthew 1 and 2, and we titled that series, God With Us. And we saw, beginning with Matthew 1, 1, the family tree of Christ. We saw, going on, the birth of the king. In chapter two, as we talked about the visit of the Magi, we saw the homage that was paid to the king. We also saw how one event after another, the father protected the son. In one case from Herod, who desired to kill him. And he constantly provided for him, both in Bethlehem, then during the flight to Egypt, and then out of egypt going to galilee and settling in nazareth the king messiah jesus christ this lord he is special and if there's one thing that you can draw from the first two chapters is that this king is unique his coming is miraculous his mission is one of a kind. He came to proclaim the message of salvation that was prophesied from long ago, the gospel of the kingdom, to which now Matthew turns in chapter 3. Now, before we actually get to study the king, Matthew highlights another man's ministry. Before he continues on to bring Jesus into the picture, he focuses on the greatest men who lived upon this earth as a matter of fact. This man had one job. His job was to sound the alarm and to prepare people to receive the king. He was sent as a herald to announce the arrival of the Messiah. Now, when you think back to Incarnation in chapter one. What is the most glorious reality of Christ taken on flesh? I think it's safe to say that as Matthew here highlights, God has come to dwell with us. This is the most glorious reality of incarnation. God himself took on human form, flesh, flesh. In order to reside and dwell among his people. Now go back to the Old Testament, consider Isaiah 6. When Isaiah saw the pre incarnate son, and we know that from uh, John 12, his response was, remember in Isaiah 6, his response was, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Why? For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Amazing. The sight, of a king causes someone to run for life. Why? He says, because I am unclean. Now in Matthew 1, the king is born, but not everyone is aware of this reality. Only a few know. So God sends a man out into the wilderness to preach in order to prepare his people to welcome that king. And the preparation of the people meant massive, National repentance. In order for the people to come and receive the kingdom and the king, it meant that the people needed to do with their sin. So this morning, we're talking about preparation for Jesus. Of course, we'll be looking at how God prepared his people for Jesus in the day of John the Baptist. But as we look at John the Baptist here in Matthew chapter 3, and the people of Israel, I also want us to make this very personal this morning. How do you prepare for Jesus? Last Friday, during our live groups, we talked about Revelation, Revelation 21, and we talked about preparation for Christ. Preparation to see the new Jerusalem, to dwell there where God himself dwells. This morning, I want us to consider, are you ready for Christ's second coming? Now, go to Matthew chapter 3. We'll begin reading with um, verse 1. We'll read all the way through verse 12. Matthew 3, 1 through 12. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist. And his food was locust with wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This morning, as we look at the herald and his message, I want us to look at four aspects of repentance, which John emphasized here in preparing the way for Jesus. Number one, I want us to look at the message of repentance. Second, the sign of repentance. Third, the fruit of repentance. And finally, the urgency of repentance. If you have today's bulletin on the back side, we have an outline for you so you can use that as we study through this passage. So first, consider the message of repentance. The message of repentance, beginning with verse 1. It was customary in the Old Testament. Uh, God's message would be communicated through special men called the prophets. And Matthew introduces here, although it's in the New Testament, but he introduces us to the last of these new Old Testament prophet, prophets, rather, John the Baptist. And although last in line, he is the greatest of them all. Consider what Jesus says of Matthew, later on in Matthew, or of John, rather, later on in Matthew eleven eleven, he gives the greatest endorsement that can be ever given when he says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. His importance is directly tied to the proximity of his ministry to that of Messiah's ministry. The reason why he is the greatest is because he's the last in line before the greatest God man takes center stage. He is the one who actually can turn around and point people to the Messiah and says, here he is. This is Christ. And his task, as we find out here in verse two is to announce the eminent arrival of the king. Now this man was the subject of many of the Old Testament prophecies, one of which we'll get to in just a second here in verse three. But as we look back to the Old Testament, as we look at the last, in fact, uh, book of the Old Testament, turn there, Malachi 4. Malachi 4, it should be a couple pages back. Malachi 4, in the last two verses of the entire Old Testament, the Lord said this through Malachi, Listen, verse five, behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. This is the prophecy. These are the last words of the Old Testament. And it's hard for us to realize as we read the Old Testament and just then turn the page and start reading Matthew 1, 1, right? That there is this lengthy period that took place before Old Testament and New Testament. In fact, 400 years, the voice of prophecy has been silent. As soon as the last prophet spoke, 400 years of silence and God's people, Israel, they're scattered all over the place. The Romans are running around and ruling and issuing their own decrees. Everything seems to what? Continue in its normal course. Yes, some 30 years ago, there was some kind of fuss about a king of Israel or the king of the Jews being born in Jerusalem, but enough time has passed by now the people have forgotten and things have settled down as was normal. And now out of the blue, or so it seems, there are strange men in Matthew 3.1 comes out in the wilderness with a strange message. And without giving us too much details, like Luke does, for instance, Matthew forwards his narrative all the way to the time when Jesus is grown up and John has grown up. And John is in the wilderness proclaiming the message. Look at this. In those days, John the Baptist came. In what days? Now, it would probably be good to know that between the end of chapter 2 of Matthew and the beginning of chapter 3 is a gap of about 28 to 30 years. So Matthew skips all of that. In fact, he doesn't even talk about Jesus' teen years like Luke does. He skips all of that, goes straight to the ministry of John the Baptist. And as John preached, they began to wonder whether this man is the actual Elijah, whether he is literal Elijah, the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. No one spoke from God in 400 years. Now, all of a sudden, this prophet comes on the scene. And if you read the gospel of John, for instance, John denies the claim that he is the actual Elijah. Folks come to him, hey, are you the Elijah? And he says, I am not. Yet, although John is not the literal Elijah, John the Baptist was in fact the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. He is the forerunner who came in the power and in the spirit of Elijah, as the angel of the Lord said in Luke chapter one. Now this will be made explicitly clear in Matthew 17. In Matthew 17, after John the Baptist had been imprisoned and killed, Jesus says this, and Jesus answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Now, if that's not clear, earlier on in Matthew 11:4, four, Jesus says, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. So after 400 years of silence, John the Baptist, it says, comes in the wilderness. This term come often used to indicate the arrival of someone special, the arrival of an official. John the Baptist is God's messenger, a herald who is sent to declare the coming of the king. And he has a special message. What is it? Verse two, repent. It's amazing that the first word out of John's mouth, and in fact, the first word out of Jesus's mouth will be repent, repent, get ready. And and I want you to notice this dominant theme of repentance here in the first 12 verses. So he comes out and in verse two says, Repent. Look at verse six. As they were being, as they were coming to John to be baptized, they were confessing their sins. In verse eight, he says, "Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance." And in verse eleven, "As for me, I baptize you with the water for repentance." What the theme of John's ministry was repentance and calling people to prepare for the coming King. Now today, this terms term repentance seems less and less popular, even in many churches. Not many wanna hear about repentance because the term assumes wrongdoing, so it often elicits resentment. If you tell someone to repent, you're telling them that they're wrong about something and they need to change. But regardless of how we or the world might feel about the use of this term, certainly it is a biblical term, And in fact, the biblical doctrine to which we must devote appropriate attention to, and that is what we want to talk about this morning. What does repentance mean? You know, repentance doesn't mean to be sorry for sins. It doesn't mean to cry or to come forward to pray with someone after the service ends. Of course, it's possible and even very likely that someone in response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit would come to a place where he weeps because of their sin, over their sin. But it's not a meaning of repentance. The term repent comes from two Greek words. One means to think, and the other means after, to think after. So the idea of to repent is to have an afterthought. What's an afterthought? Well, an afterthought is a different thought. In other words, you, you had intention to do something, to act a certain way, to go somewhere, to say something. You thought of it, and you were going to implement that in an action. Now, an afterthought is you thinking about it again and changing your mind. So that's why repentance came to mean a change of mind. So first of all, it's a mental thing, not an emotional thing. This change of mind, this change of heart, doesn't mean any change, but a change from wrong to right. It's a change with respect to one's conviction about the truth, so that when one repents, he changes the object of his faith and object of his trust. He no longer trusts in himself. He no longer trusts in the church. He no longer trusts in his good deeds, good works, as if that is what He intended to show before the Lord. He no longer trusts his religious activities or heritage. He becomes convinced that there is a better way to restore his relationship with God. John Broaddus observed that whenever this Greek word is used in the New Testament, the reference is to changing the mind and the purpose from sin to holiness, from negative to positive. And as John was Preaching repentance, he was calling people to turn around. Turn around, he says, because the king is on his way. Be converted. Jesus came to save his people from their sins, right? We find out in Matthew chapter one. So it was necessary for his people to confess their sins. Now, why did they need to change? Why did they need to be converted? He adds the reason for, repent for. Here's why the kingdom is at hand. It's imminent. Jesus is already here. The king was born 30 years ago. And he's about to come up here and be baptized himself and enter his public ministry. Before he does that, let me tell you, get ready for the king. Now, Matthew will have a lot to say about the kingdom of heaven. And so we don't need to pack All of our kingdom theology here in this one sermon, as we study through, we'll just add additional features of the kingdom. But one thing that we need to know is that the kingdom of heaven is the messianic kingdom. And it's an Old Testament concept. It was promised in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come and would set up his kingdom on earth. He would establish his kingdom here. As the last of the Old Testament apostles, John the Baptist, or rather prophets, John the Baptist is pronouncing the arrival. Here it is. For thousands of years, it was prophesied that kingdom would come, and now here is the king. Now, we know from the rest of the New Testament, we Christians who are removed 2000 years from the cross and who have the full counsel of God's word, the full revelation that there are two aspects to this kingdom. The aspect of the ministry of Christ at his first coming, right? In which he lays the foundation for the kingdom. He comes in and he what dies on the cross. He spills his blood. It is the foundation for that kingdom. He inaugurates a new covenant in his blood, But then there's the ministry of the king at his second coming, which is yet to come, in which he destroys all of God's enemies and sets up his kingdom on earth. He comes as a hidden king. Okay, he comes as a hidden king in his first coming. He comes as a majestic king in glory in his second coming. That's why people missed him in Matthew 1 and 2, because he was... A king born in poverty. His agenda was different. I allude you once again and take you to the passage in John where Jesus says, in speaking with Pilate, he says, my kingdom, don't mess it up. It's not like yours. It's not of this world. I came here to do the work to save lost sinners. So like the Old Testament prophet, John didn't know this twofold nature of Christ's kingdom. He did not, he he seems that that he can't grasp the fact that Messiah would come twice. In fact, it seems that John's message here in Matthew chapter three is more geared to his second coming than his first. Why? Because of such words, judgment, 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 repent, repent, repent. So church for us here who are waiting for Christ's second coming, this message is all the more relevant and all the more pertinent for us this morning. As far as he's aware, the arrival of the king and the kingdom means that God is gonna usher in his righteousness. And the uniqueness of John's ministry is to prepare people. He's special. That's why Matthew picks up in verse three and he says, listen, this is the one to whom Isaiah referred in Isaiah 40 verse three. And look what Isaiah does. He simply refers to this man as the voice, the voice. In other words, the focus is on the message rather than the messenger. Doesn't, doesn't focus on describing this guy, but so much the voice is crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. He was a herald to prepare the way for the Lord. In the ancient times, whenever there a king would come in, king would always send a herald. He would always send one who would pronounce loudly, "The king is on the way." And in addition to that, he would send out like a construction team, like a highway team, who would come in. And because there were no paved roads, they would flatten the service. Sometimes they would even, for one time, for a king to visit a city, he they would pave the road, pave a way so that king would have access to that particular city. So he says, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So he's not talking about just removing some curves, but removing obstacles, paving, putting on asphalt, putting on concrete so that the kings would have level uh, ground. Now, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? John's preparation and him making the way of the Lord ready was the proclamation of repentance. You know how you prepare for the Lord? You repent of sin. The way you become ready in order to usher in the kingdom of Christ is by confessing your sin, is by coming to him clean. This smoothing and straightening out the road was a picture of Repentance. His message is very simple. Repent, clear the way, the king is here, confess your sin, humble yourselves, turn to God, don't rely, he will say, on your heritage and on your privileges, you're just the same as the Gentiles. Jew, you're just the same as the Gentiles. Friends, the same message of repentance goes out to us this morning. And although John's message here was very unique for its time, in fact, we can say that this message wasn't even the gospel message. It wasn't even a a complete gospel because Jesus hadn't yet been, hadn't yet died or been resurrected. But we know the complete gospel. Just as John was calling out to prepare the nation to meet their king at the first coming, the word of God goes out to us, to every single one, the adult the children, the teenagers here in our midst. God is coming. Get ready for the king. And if you read Revelation 21 and 22, what does it say? He is coming. How? He's coming very quickly. He's coming quickly. Repent. Get ready. How do you get ready? The same way that they did. You know, there's a closely related New Testament term to repentance, and that is belief. Believe, repent, believe in the gospel. And that is why Jan read R- Romans chapter 10, where in verse nine it says, how do you become saved? You believe, you confess Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And if you do that, you will be saved. Repent and Believe. Now, John's first part of the ministry was the proclamation of the message, but second, look at the sign of repentance, the message of repentance, second, the sign of repentance. John is called the Baptist for obvious reasons, not because he was the first man who belonged to a Baptist convention of some sort or denomination. Back in the day, they didn't have those. We do have them now, but because his primary task was to baptize. In fact, Uh, A more accurate way would be to say John the baptizer, John who baptizes, but they shorten that to John the Baptist. Why did he baptize? Well, because baptism was meant to show that your repentance is real. There's no fooling around. There was a sign. To say something was good, but it was not enough. You needed to prove it. It made it visible, tangible for all to see. You submitted to God by submitting to the one whom God sent before all the nations. You confessed your sin openly before everyone. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance in order to prepare you for Jesus. Take a look at verse four. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locust with wild honey. You know, John's food and, and clothing matched his living conditions. He was in the wilderness. He didn't have the luxuries. He ate what he could. He wore what he could. But his clothing marked him out as a prophet, according to Zechariah 13.4. And the way he looked, what he wore, the camel's hair and the leather belt that he wore, probably reminded people of Elijah. That's why people, when they came out to the wilderness, like, you're Elijah. Because we read in 2 Kings that that's exactly what Elijah wore. Again, everything about this man is making the connection, this prophetic connection to the Old Testament. All in all, John's lifestyle was simple but yet strict. Everything about him backed up his message of repentance. One preacher said, "Even the food and dress of John preached. Preached. There are no luxuries, no comforts. Everything is stripped away. The only thing that matters is the message: Be converted." Children of Israel, repent, be ready for the coming king. And look at the immediate effect of John's ministry. Verse five, then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the districts around Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. I mean, this reaction is unprecedented, church. You see, no self-respecting Jew would ever submit himself to baptism, they offered baptism. They themselves would never be baptized. They were the people of God, they thought. And anyone who wanted to join them as the people of God would actually come in to them and ask for a baptism in order to join the group called the people of God. But a Jew? who submitted himself to such a baptism would in essence be admitting that he's also just like the Gentile outside of the kingdom looking in. This was unprecedented. Members of God's chosen race, children of Abraham are coming to John to be baptized like the Gentiles. And notice in verse 6, they're coming to to John the Baptist to be baptized as they were confessing their sins. They were publicly admitting guilt, after which they were baptized by John. And this picture of going out of Jerusalem was itself an admission that this old religious system set up in Jerusalem was soon to be dead. A new program is coming, and John is calling them out to remove themselves out of this old religion into the new, where Christ is going to be the king, Christ is going to be the head. Now it's important to know, note that these were probably the folks whom Matthew refers to as the crowd in the rest of the gospel. We'll see in just a, a few minutes how the religious elite responded, but the crowds, man, they were attached. They were attracted by this message. Why? Because if you read Matthew, you see that people are so tired. People are tired of personal sin. People are tired of guilt. People are tired of the religious elite who are tying up heavy burdens for which they were confronted by Christ every step of the way. And now all of a sudden, these crowds, they hear that there is another way. They hear that there's a coming remedy for their burden, for their sin, and they're flocking out to John in order to be baptized. This was a precursor to Jesus himself. You know, in Matthew 11, as Jesus was denouncing the cities because they failed to believe John and failed to see the miracles that were done in their midst, he graciously offers this this offer and he says, come to me, children of Israel, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. This is what John was pointing to with his call for repentance, with his call to be baptized to be converted, to confess their sins because a king is coming who will forever remove their debt, remove their sin. And maybe today you also need some relief. Relief from sin, relief from pain, relief from guilt. Perhaps you are too burdened. The solution is the same. 2,000 years later, repent of sin, confess Christ, be No longer ashamed, friend. When sin is at stake, nothing matters but repentance and truth and faith in Christ. You know, John's message of repentance was not only a call to an inner transformation of the heart along with this outside sign that symbolizes this change, but as important as these, it also included a charge to demonstrate a real change in one's life, which brings us to this third aspect, beginning with verse seven, the fruit of repentance. There's the message of repentance. There's the sign of repentance. Consider what he says in verse seven. You see, baptism itself is not enough. There must be a genuine turning to God in your life, which demonstrates itself in bearing fruit. Christianity is a religion that bears fruit not just subscribes to a certain standard, but Christianity is made of people who are transformed. And you know it, not simply because of what they say, but because of who they are and what they look like. Christians are changed people. God wants the fruit, not just religion. And it's no surprise then that John it gets very heated here in verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you're a bunch of snakes. Literally, he calls them, you are a generation of snakes. He doesn't buddy up to them. He doesn't sweeten his words to attract them. He calls them what they are. Just like John, Jesus will on the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the gospel. Brood of vipers. These vipers were the desert snakes and I'm sure that John was very familiar with them as he hung around in the desert, in the wilderness. And what happened with these snakes is that they often appeared as dead branches. You'd walk around and you think it's a dead branch, you'd pick it up and you actually pick up a snake. So this picture was a perfect example of hypocrisy something that looks one way, but there's something up with it. As soon as you pick up, you discover that it's something different. And so here, this picture of a snake is a picture of their hypocrisy. Now, we don't know um, if these religious uh, rulers, Pharisees and Sadducees, were actually coming to John to be baptized or just to observe baptism. Like if you read the NASB edition translation of the Greek, then it seems as though they were coming for baptism. Like they were ready to be baptized. If you read ESV, ESV translates it a little bit differently as if they were coming in to look at the scene of baptism, what is happening. And so the original, you can't really tell uh, which way to go. So the uh, translating committee here, they kind of pick where they want to land, but regardless of what happened, perhaps, perhaps they were coming in. These religious leaders would would come for baptism with this kind of pomp that characterized all of their religious activity. You know, the proud, well dressed, pious, sounding a trumpet before themselves, something that Jesus would condemn, as if to show everyone, the world, and all the nation, that hey, we're ready. We're ready to see. Jesus, are we ready to see the king without actually submitting ourselves to this repentance, without repenting of sin? And so check this out. He says, you snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, John wasn't mixing words. Do you think you can fool God? God. I hope none of us here sitting this morning can think that we can somehow escape the notice of God, not just our parents, not just our government, not just our church leaders, but of God, who warned you to flee, who suggested to you that you would escape the coming wrath, he says, who warned you? to flee the wrath so that you come for baptism when in fact you show no fruit of repentance. You see, God's coming reign either demanded true repentance or a brought judgment. Choose. Bear fruit that demonstrates, he says, repentance. It must be genuine. If you wish to escape wrath, your entire lifestyle, your entire life must be in harmony with your verbal profession, with your verbal repentance. You say you believe in God. John says, demonstrate it, bear fruit. True repentance, we know from the rest of the scripture, always demonstrates itself in, in genuine work. That's why James writes in 217: faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Paul, when preaching to King Agrippa in Acts 26, said that the truth he was declaring for all was to repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. In other words, your profession here and your deeds here, they must balance out. They must level out. You can't outweigh the other. One, if you profess to know Jesus, the holy God, you must present a comparable behavior, which is, which is, he points that out. He calls them out on this. Remember John. Remember what what um, John wrote in First John chapter four, verse twenty. He says, "Listen, if you say, if anyone says he loves God, but what says but does, hates his brother." So there's a profession, but the action doesn't match up to your profession. If you say you love God, but you hate your brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he he has not seen. Uh, Listen, there is no special privilege in God's kingdom. Uh, Everyone gets in the same way by repenting and by believing in Christ. And this is what, what he tells them. And do not suppose... Do not suppose that you have an upper hand here when it comes to getting into the kingdom. You don't. Mere descent from Abraham, it will not do. In fact, think about this. What John is saying here when he says God can raise up children to Abraham from stones, he says, listen, your chance to get into the kingdom apart from repentance and faith in the king is as good as that of a cold stone. Same. Zero. Zero. Repentance and faith is key. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter what your heritage is. It doesn't matter how much you come to church and what you do for seniors. None of that matters. What matters is your faith in Christ and then that will be demonstrated because it's a response to what Christ has done as opposed to trying in to get what can only be offered and received by faith. It's a response. The fruit is the response, but it must be there. That's why Paul in Romans 2.11 says, listen, there's no partiality with God. God has one standard, and that standard is Jesus. And that's what the whole Sermon on the Mountain will be here that we will be studying. Church, outside of Christ, there are no special privileges. You know, Thomas Goodwin, during one of his sermons, said this brief remark in passing. He says, Judas heard all of Christ's sermons. And I thought that was that was very interesting. You know, it's possible for us to, to hear all the preaching and still be offspring and generation of snakes. It's possible for us to attend all the meetings such as this, hear the preaching of God's word, and be totally unresponsive to it. Is your life, friend, a testimony of faith in Christ Jesus? Or are you like this group, pretending to be one thing on the outside and yet totally different on the inside? And yet deep down, you know the truth. You know your heart. You can't fool yourself. There's only one solution for you, and that is to repent of sin, trust Savior, allow him to transform you today. I want us to finally look at this, this urgency, the urgency of repentance in verse 10. The ax is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You know, as I already mentioned, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets and like his predecessors, John believed that when Messiah comes, He will bring both restoration and judgment, and it'll happen immediately. We know now it did not happen immediately, but the judgment is coming. And in verse 10, we see that John believed that since the kingdom of heaven is at hand, like it's imminent, because the king is here, he's going to usher in his kingdom. God's ultimate judgment was imminent as well, because the kingdom is here, because the king is coming. Listen, judgment is coming with it. And look what it says here. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. This axe was used for felling trees and chopping wood. And here's what one commentator says. He says, the idea of an axe being laid at the tree, he says, the idea is probably not that the axe rests against the root, waiting for the divine axe to pick it up and begin his work. But instead that the axeman has gripped the ax and placed the blade against the root to ensure an accurate cut, ready in himself to sever the root with a masterful swing. You ever chopped wood? You take the ax, you put it where you want to chop, right? And then you swing. Well, this is the picture here. He already grabbed the axe, already measured a swing, and he's ready to swing. Therefore, therefore, introduces a conclusion drawn from the previous statement. Every single tree, John says, that fails to bear fruit of repentance will be eminently chopped down and burned in the fire. So what is the urgent call? The urgent call is do it now. Stop fooling around. Jesus is coming. John says he is here. How much more closer are we to his coming? You know, next Sunday we'll spend more time looking at this verse and the rest of the chapter. But I just want you to see this, that John believed that the arrival of the king would bring strict judgment. And he says, be reconciled to him. Repent. But here's the thing. Friends, repentance is not an act of self-preservation. Repentance is not an act of self-preservation. You may be tempted to, to move in God's direction because of some selfish reason in a selfish fashion. Like, you know, seeking an escape from hell. But if, that were, if that's where it ends, it ends before it becomes genuine repentance. Repentance is not something that you do for yourself. Repentance is your acknowledgement of sin against the holy God. It's not simply a regret of consequences for sin. You see, when David was convicted by the Spirit about his sin, he prayed this way in 51, Psalm 51, verse 4. He says, Against you, you only I have sinned. He sinned against many people. Brought great tragedy, but against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Repentance is not a self-preservation tactic. Repentance is coming clean before the Lord. Acknowledging your sin and guilt before a holy God, confessing that sin and pointing to Christ and believing in Christ saying he paid it all. I want what he has, not what I can offer you because that's all I offer. And so friend, cry out to God in genuine faith and repentance and ask him to transform you from inside out. True repentance is when you come to the end of yourself, when you stop using others, when you stop using God, and you become a person who is dead, dead to self, and then in faith you are made alive in Christ Jesus. You know, church, today sometimes the the gospel is presented as though we can simply add the work of Jesus to our quote-unquote portfolio as if just some other investment. As if you do not need to forsake anything, but simply just add Jesus to your life. You know, you have all these great things going, but just in case, perhaps something is lagging, so just try Jesus and add him. The Bible truth is that you must empty your portfolio and let Christ alone fill it. Put all your eggs in one basket. Don't try to diversify. Why? Because nothing else will help. The king is at hand. In Revelation 22, he says, I am coming quickly. If you don't have the righteousness of Christ, as we read in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, he is the end of the law. He is the one who brings righteousness and ushers righteousness in. Trust him. Forsake all to follow Christ. And therefore, I say again, repent and believe. And in addition to that, church, let's be a bunch of John the Baptist. I mean, think about this guy. We'll, we'll study this more in 11 through, through the rest of the chapter, but he was he found joy in pointing others to Christ, rather than seeking his own spotlight. It wasn't about spotlight. Christ is coming, church. Herald this news and prepare others to meet the Lord. Our Father, what a privilege. It is for us to be confronted, for us to analyze ourselves, for us to once again come to a place where we can cling tight to Christ and say, Oh, how dear He is! Because apart from the King, apart from the Messiah, apart from the one who bled for us, we would be so desperate. We would be going out and and trying to find all kinds of ways in order to silence our conscience, in order to lighten our burden. father you provided a way and john pointed to this man and said he is the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world and so we rejoice this morning knowing that as we continue to confess our sins it is not a one time event it's a continual event that we would that we become more and more like christ that we cherish him more because we realize how deeply sinful we are, how wicked we are, and yet because of Jesus we are alive and well. And instead of fearing judgment, we look forward joyfully to the coming day when when we will see our Lord face to face. Father, we pray for folks in this congregation who perhaps don't know you who are maybe putting this aside, who don't think that walking under your wrath is such a big deal right now that they will have more time. Oh Lord, I pray that you would just show them the reality of their situation. And may you compel them to run to Jesus who alone is our shelter in time of need. And what greater need than to escape sin. Build us up. Give us faith to believe this message. In Christ's name we pray, amen.